Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. I am an author, yoga teacher, healer, social worker, dismantling racism trainer, activist, and grief worker. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times, and to remind us about the resilience and joy that comes from allowing ourselves to find refuge. Today's interview is with Mirabel de Cunha. Mirabel supports committed yoga lovers to savor the luxury of inner experience and find purpose, pleasure, and joy in life through breath. She provides a loving space for them to unplug from urgency into deep trust and allowing. Her signature offerings are Sadhana Club, an online sanctuary that brings grace, clarity, and community to yoga teachers and practitioners, as well as her Radiant You private mentoring program for healing through breath. Mirabelle is in an intimate relationship with yoga as a breath, breathing experience, and has been on the path of living yoga for 19 years, studying with swamis and teachers from the Shivananda Saraswati lineage and at Mumbai University. Mirabelle has taught yoga at ashrams and studios in India, the USA, Canada, Bahamas, Bermuda, and the Cayman Islands, and is a guest teacher on yoga teacher training on pranayama, bhakti yoga, and deeper nuances of yoga as a living practice. She has also been a speaker and panelist for Yoga Alliance. I hope you enjoy this interview with Mirabel de Cunha. Welcome, Mirabel. I am glad you're here. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful, and I, I'm just feeling so much energy. I'm not finding the word, but I'm grateful to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I'm grateful you're here and to connect with you in this way. So first, thank you for agreeing to be a guest, finding refuge, and for making time for our connection and conversation today. It's an honor. Thank you. And I would love for you to share some about who you are, the work you do in the world, your practice, whatever you would like for listeners to know about who you are. I think I'm a lover of life. Through the excitement and the simplicity of connecting with breath and all the potential for the entire human and spiritual experience that it offers. In that sense, I think I'm like in a dance with breath and life and accepting all parts of my human and everybody's human and divine existence, however it unfolds. That is how I feel about my soul in this moment. More practically, (laughs) to support committed yoga lovers, to find purpose and joy and intimacy in life through just like a delicious savoring of this sensual, spiritual experience of breath and delicate, compassionate self-inquiry to find freedom through sadhana, daily spiritual practice, 
as a way not to just discipline, but to sort of carpe diem and seize like the deliciousness in every moment, whether there's grief or there's joy, that sense of having connection with life as a constantly bubbling, constantly growing, constantly shifting, dancing experience. Yeah, I think in a nutshell, yeah, that's me. I love how you describe what you do in the world and who you are and how you center the breath. And I'm curious to know if you've always centered the breath or talked about it in the way you just did. Is that like inherent to who you are? It sounds like it is. Or did Uh, did you come to that in some way? Did something teach you to connect with the breath in the way you're talking about and then to teach others? Yeah, I uh, know I didn't always have this connection with breath, Michelle. I don't think I had any connection with it. I had a strong connection with movement because I was always very anxious. I always, ever since I was a little child, I felt like there was this like anxious buzz in my body, kind of like, like, and it never stopped except when I danced. And so I'd shut myself in my room when I felt overwhelmed. And it wasn't necessary because something was happening. It was just something that would kind of like this, this, Kind of like when sound goes to this level where you can't handle it and you kind of feel irate, like you can be still and you can be in the moment. And so I found dance as a great way for catharsis and release and imagination and escape and creativity and everything. But then when I was about 25, I had an L5 slip disc and that left me being unable to move. And the only thing I could do was write, which is another one of my sort of inherent expressions. But it wasn't quite the same. And that's when I had, I I was born and raised in India. So yoga has been part of my cultural living sort of day-to-day heritage. And I trained quite intensively. I was at Bombay University for two years studying yoga philosophy and on the way to college every day, I'd go to the Yoga Institute and attend satsang and asana class. And so it was part of like my upbringing, but I just never gave any importance or relevance to breath. I was just too kind of disembodied and like I couldn't connect with it. I didn't get it. I got it in theory, but I didn't have an experience of it. And it was when I was doing, when I had the L5 slip disc and then I discovered I had congenital scoliosis and few cervical vertebrae and there was a little hope of me sort of really going back to where I was before after surgery. I really felt called to yoga and I felt like I can't have a surgery because I know from the yogic practices and just kind of growing up in India that all the channeling happens through the energy in the spine. And so as far as possible, we don't want to sever or sort of manipulate anything in the spine and so I went off to the Himalayas to the Shivananda Ashram and signed up for a teacher training course well actually I had signed up for it before I was in transition feeling like all the success I had was not it wasn't filling my soul like it fulfilled me but that part of that journey was done and I showed up for this teacher training and On the first day, everyone was in a headstand and I was like, why are they in teacher training? There were just three of us that were not in a headstand. And it was the three Indian people, the only three Indian people in the the course. And it was depressing. 
And the guru came up to me and he assisted me into a supported headstand. I'd never done a headstand in my life before. And I looked at him like, are you crazy? For some reason, I, he looked in my eyes and I felt like I can trust this moment. And something really out of the ordinary happened when I was put into that supported headstand. Breath just suspended itself. And I lost all awareness of time, of pain, of the physical body. And I was lost, literally lost, but aware that I was lost. The, it was like I had only one thought. I'm lost, like I'm everywhere or something like that. That was just one thought and then the experience. And it must have been a few seconds perhaps, but it felt like an extended sort of dream or a deep sleep or like something that was really prolonged and with a lot of depth. And when I came out, I felt this exhilaration because I felt like, wow, if this broken body can be in this state, whatever that state was, I had no clue at that time, then imagine what possibilities are there. Like I could fly like Superman if I had to. I really felt like that. Still actually, honestly, do feel like that. If push comes to shove and there is this soul calling to fly, I'll fly. Like nothing is impossible. And that's when this connection with breath really sort of took over me. And most of my healing, it took about two years for the slip disc to heal. And I would say that 90% of my healing happened during the practice of pranayama. And that's sort of what has me addicted for all these years to breath or rather to the force. And I, force even feels like a very masculine word. The way I experience breath is actually in as the divine feminine, not without the masculine, but just more predominantly in that gentle, nurturing, non-judgmental way. And yeah, and so how can you not go back to something that doesn't judge you and is always available for you? And there's no forgiveness needed because there's only compassion. So where is the question of forgiveness? I think that's what keeps me kind of hooked to breath. That's a really powerful story of how you came to the breath and also how you describe the sensation of being lost, but being aware you were lost and trying to figure out what is this, right? The mindfulness. So are you really lost? Is what I was thinking, because there's awareness there. And the trust you also talked about connected with the guru and trusting that you would be okay in that moment. And then connecting that with the breath and how you teach others to breathe. And, and I would love for you to share some about you're teaching, you're offering how you set up space and hold it centered on pranayam or the breath. You know, there's pranayam is a state and it's a practice. It's both. Initially, my relationship with it was as a mechanical practice. As a practice you do because you do Nadi Shodan or Anulom Vilom because it cleanses the Nadis and that brings you more harmony, peace cleansing, all of that. So it was that was sort of the selling point for me, that it was a surefire way to get results. I was very ambitious and very interested in results. <laughs> that was my initial relationship with the practice of pranayam. But over the years, when you speak about holding space, 
what I truly feel is that there is nothing to hold. And rather, when I'm with a student, it is just allowing the purity of that student's desire and my desire to be of assistance, to be, for lack of a word in English, to be offered into allowing. Like the action of offering, like Anjali Mudra, and then just like putting something into a yagna fire, swaha. Just that action, it allows, like there is no other word. It's just allowing what is already present that I don't have to hold space because there is no boundary to how much is allowed or available through grace in any moment. The boundaries are only in my mind and in my ego, which of course comes up to think that, oh, this student couldn't do it without me or I'm the best person to do this or all these sort of like stories that come and go in the moments of experience. And so my real, this is beautiful mantra. It's not really a mantra, but it's sort of like the shloka, it ends. That's the feeling that I feel like it's not mine. It's not my students. We offer ourselves to your grace, however it's meant to come. And that's the beauty of all the work. I do a lot of one-on-one work with people. I have a program called Breathe Into a Radiant You. And it's like a nine-session program. And we work only through pranayam and sadhya, self-inquiry. And yes, I have some kind of structure and modules around it. But most of the time, it's really sometimes what we hold intention for does not manifest because there is something that is more urgent for the divine to pour into us. And in that, there is trust. In that, there is a discovery, actually, Michelle, of where do I place my trust? Because if I don't know what results are going to come, and if I'm going to receive the results that I desire, can I be with my desire and the purity of this human longing, karma? And can I also be with the trust that whatever I'm meant to receive is inevitably going to come to me? So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but in a non-technical way, this is sort of how it unfolds most of the time. I mean, I think people say that all the time. I don't know if I answered your question and I'm like, I think you gave the answer that was supposed to come through. That's an answer. So, and you're in the moment, right? You're speaking what needs to be spoken instead of intellectualizing the question, right? I can tell that process is is going on. So thank you for bringing the answer forth that you did. Yeah. You mentioned earlier when you went to the training, you were one of three South Asian folks, I think, in the training. And I do a fair amount of work around the intersection of justice and yoga in the U.S. because I haven't lived anywhere else and really practiced anywhere else. And a lot of people are, I think, now centering on cultural appropriation in a way that feels different and new to me here because it feels like more and more people are talking about it and more Desi or South Asian folks are talking about it. And so I'm just curious to 
hear your thoughts about this practice of yoga and how it is being practiced. I mean, you're teaching people from all over the world. So how it's being practiced and maybe if there's something you understand about how those of us who are not directly connected to the lineage of the practice can move more closely to the essence of the practice. The essence of the practice is ensconced in the techniques. Techniques are very precise and technique allows for freedom. The techniques have been honed and actually, you know, their darshan has given, they, they haven't been constructed. The techniques in yoga are tapping into existing laws of energy. They haven't been designed by humans. They have been noticed and across different elements in nature and the manifestation, both physical and how do I say it? Like you can feel energy, like the sort of proprioception for to use a very kind of, I don't think that completely conveys what I'm trying to say. And so the essence to me is in the technique, in commitment to the technique. And in terms of cultural appropriation, I sort of sit in a very interesting place because I was born and raised in Mumbai. I was raised in a Catholic family. My ancestors were Hindu Brahmins before the Portuguese colonization of Goa. My great-grandfather worked for the Portuguese government. My grandfather was a freedom fighter fighting for justice of the Adivasis or the original inhabitants, the sort of Again, it's hard to translate Adivasi Adi is like before the ones that lived before. So like the Native Americans would be like sort of the Adivasis. And so he was he was doing that. And so there were lots of conversations in my home growing up about justice. And it could never be black or white because of our own family being like my grandfather. My great-grandfather disowned my grandfather because he went against the Portuguese and his job and uh, just a lot of that. So, and in terms of culture as well, in terms of cultural appropriation and like being from India, our culture and our ways of practicing yoga are such an amalgam in terms of the ritualistic practices. They're also extremely diverse across different, again, for lack of better word to use, sets of practicing within whether it's Sanatan Dharma, which is known as Hinduism, but it's not really. It's the eternal way of life, the eternal law of the universe, law of living in harmony. Or across Islam, or when the Muslims pray the namaz in India, like they're breathing, they're doing Vajrasana actually, they're doing child's pose, they're inhaling, exhaling, they're engaging with directions. And so there are so many flavors of practicing yoga because it is not a religious practice. It is compatible with all religions and even with no religion, with any belief system. And especially if we come to it from a space of engaging with the breath, because the breath does not belong to us. We cannot own it. We cannot choose when it should come and when it should go. And so I find, and then in the West now, there's this big conversation around cultural appropriation, which everything has its place. So I am just watching the unfolding and understanding that there is a reason why this is coming up at this time. There are ancestral reasons. There are present time reasons. 
there is a, a blooming of sharing the need for belonging and acceptance, which previous generations, both in India and of Southeast Asians in the West, did not have. Because if you don't have economic security, it's very hard to be able to voice what matters to you because you are hugely dependent on dominant culture. And I find that we can sort of shed the attachment to culture, not with the need to denigrate it or to make less of it, but to recognize that there cannot be a homogenous way to practice. It was never part of yoga to have a homogenous cultural practice. When we talk about yoga, that's another one of my passions. And I did the Bhakti Summit earlier this year. There's like 13th century women, you know, Dalit and Adivasi women writing, saying, my Lord, I want to be a slut to you. But at the same time, we have the practices where they're saying, cover yourself and be modest. And there is as much devotion in the woman that says, I don't care if the world calls me slut. I want to be one with you, which is the practice of seeing the divine as your lover, one of the forms of bhakti. And then another practice, which is, I want to surrender to you. I want to lose attachment to this body and be wearing all these clothes, be disrobed of that attachment to body and be one with you. And so I, I just find it like, interesting because as an Indian I don't take offense to I definitely people putting their legs on books or wearing like the deities on different like leggings and things like that I find it uncomfortable and this is again I noticed this is my conditioning just like in India like the first time I came to the west I saw people wearing or on Miss America I think it was Miss World we used to watch this on telly in India because that's the way you saw the world and the American Miss World would be wearing like this bikini in the flag. And in India, like the flag is so sacred. Like you, you don't touch the flag. Like it's so sacred. Like you'd never wear it on your body and much less in a bikini. And it was like, just, it was so hard to watch it. But as I feel the discomfort, I also notice that is part of my conditioning. And it's part of how I'm limiting people's experience of the practice just like I did with beer yoga and goat yoga and it's not my preferred way to practice and I have had a really hard journey with coming to where I am now which is who am I to decide how the divine chooses to manifest in somebody's life if the divine has no boundaries and no judgment and is ever compassionate and in all ways to grief and anger and loss and and human pain inviting me deeper into healing and compassion then please divine can you let me lose these boundaries because what does it matter if I say namaste or not because in my country people say namaste for different things at different times and living being from India I know this Having traveled across my country, I know this, but it would be hard for someone that's of Indian origin or South Asian origin born in another part as it is for my daughter to understand these nuances of the culture. But I know that if the technique is practiced, Michelle, if the technique is practiced the way it is recommended, and by grace we have guidance, 
then the results, everyone will come to a space of maybe, for lack of a better word, cultural appreciation and celebration. It becomes natural to us. This is not a journey I have cognized. I used to be the most judgmental person, love to be on debates, love to argue and validate my point of view. And I haven't done anything except do my sadhana every day to have the shift. And I know there's still a lot more shifting. I appreciate everything you named and just listening to you, receiving what you named. And I think one thing I really appreciate out of the many is what you named about the techniques and the practice, because it left me thinking, what are we practicing? Why are we practicing? And your what you named about how the divine manifest and what the actual intention is here for us as humanity and for the planet, like where are we going and trusting inherent what you said is trusting the divine, but it took work for you to get there. And part of the work was the practice, a commitment to practice. And I also want to say, as people have different opinions about this, and you very clearly named, this is how I relate to this. And you also named in your own experience and reflection and probably through self-study and practice, who am I to judge someone else? And if I'm actually practicing, then I won't necessarily be in a place of judgment. And I just wanted to say that because I heard it. I understand some about the cultural context and why people who have experienced erasure would be saying, stop harming us. Because you also named, these are the ways in which I've been harmed. It makes me deeply uncomfortable. I imagine it's painful at times, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not negating that. You're just saying, I'm putting my energy here and other folks may put their energy somewhere else. And the overall goal is like union. Like we're going to end up yeah. hopefully in this place of union and integration and wholeness and a lack of erasure and our fullness. And these are my words. You didn't name that. It's just what I, how I'm relating to what you said. Yeah, absolutely. And it just I've had a little journey with some of the things that Salvation people that weren't born and raised in India say, they just seem completely like, what are you saying? But I recognize that their pain. Like I've experienced discrimination among different communities in India and different shades of skin color in India because it exists. My daughter is being raised here in the West where there is also, maybe it's not as much, or maybe I don't see it so much. I don't know. Maybe I, I keep thinking, am I not aware of it enough? Or like, why do I not feel, I do feel discriminated against, but I also feel like it's not that important because my trust or my, I am held by something that I go back to every morning in my sadhana. That is like a, a bosom or a womb or something that is so accepting of everything. That's my refuge, right? Like this is your... And there are so many things that people... I think it's also like the ignorance that all of us possess about different things that causes people to do things. Like my chai, for example. It doesn't really have anything to do with yoga per se, but it's just like a very Indian thing. And then like chai tea and I'm like, no, no, chai means tea. So if you're saying chai tea, you're saying tea. <laughs> but the person doesn't know. <laughs> and I'm like, why don't you come over? And I'd love to make you a cup of chai. And this is the way I make it. But, you know, somebody else will make it completely different. And on different days, I will make it differently. And just things like Christmas is around the corner. And many times the best people say to me, so do you celebrate Christmas? Because they assume that because I'm from India, I must be Hindu. And it used to make me very irritated. But now I recognize that they just don't know enough about India. 
And then I share with them my Portuguese roots and the Hindu roots before that. And like how all of this is part of my, like all of the religions and the festivals of India are part of my inheritance. And I find that when I share from that space, they warm up so much. Like they don't feel like I'm attacking them because how could you not know like we have more than eight religions in India? Like really, don't you know anything about India? Like you should know, you should find out about one of the countries that has the largest population in the world. Like you should really know. So it's it's just that, that, and everybody is healing. We're all healing and asking for healing, whether it's through anger or through whatever we're doing. And it's beautiful. Yeah. I love what you just named about what we're asking for is healing. And we express that differently. And I also want to say just for folks listening that as a Black person in the U.S., practicing yoga, profiting from teaching yoga, I do feel a responsibility to learn about cultural preparation, to do something to respond to the harm that has happened because of erasure and the ways in which I'm participating in that, not because I want to, but because of the cultural context. So our positionality is different related to that because of our identity. So I wanted to just name that for folks like what you're naming doesn't feel like, and what I name doesn't feel like a pass. I actually yes. need to do work as I hold and receive everything you named. And I just want folks to think about that for themselves based on where they're from, their identities, their relationship with yoga, what they know about it. Because I certainly know I have a lot more to learn. And I will learn. I always say I'll learn like one one hundredth maybe of what I might need <laughs> in this lifetime. And maybe not even that, one one thousandth of what I need to know. So Thank you for naming that. And you mentioned refuge and where you go and feeling hell, which resonated deeply with me. And I I have a question about what I'm witnessing right now, just in spaces I'm moving through and co-creating is a lot of fatigue, a lot of grief, a lot of overwhelm, confusion, despair, resilience, creating joy. And I'm wondering this moment and the moment we're in is for folks who are listening to know is we're in the middle of COVID. We've been here for almost a year, if not a year, because I think it was around in December. It wasn't necessarily here. And politically in the U.S., we're in a space where the administration is about to shift. And that's been a huge, it's a huge transition and it's been painful. And we're in a cultural moment where people are really trying to dismantle systems and structures that have been in place for a long time. And there may be 15 other things going on for you where you are. And I'm just wondering how you're making meaning of this moment. How do you understand this based on what you understand about who you are and and the practice and everything you've named? I truly feel like this is, there's a word in Sanskrit. I'm going to say it and then I'll try translating it in English. It's called Jagran. When if you listen to the sound of it, Jagran, like it has a grah like a right it has a greeting to it but it also has like an energy of action like jagran it is like an awakening but not in the sense of it is like a shocking awakening and i think it's a time of no compromising on who i am what i'm here to do and how I can be the change that I want to see in the world. And to me, feeling this in the context of the divine feminine, because I feel her very strongly, 
I have to say, I started my journey and my Ishta Devda is Shiva. But, you know, I've had just these experiences. The Divine Mother just come and taken over. I always say, like, I'm abducted by her. <laughs> and when we see the Divine Feminine in the context of the archetypes in yoga, there's Kali. And this is Kali Yoga, actually speaking. It's the first, I think it was, we're only five years into was that was my guru said I can't remember the numbers now just into Kali Yoga and and Kali is she's naked and she's bold and she's unapologetic and she's totally loving and she sticks her tongue out and I guess the the kind of equivalent would be like sticking your middle finger not like to be like in a way of retaliation or anything but in a way of in this moment, I am who I am. And I have nothing to say for it. Nothing to take back from what was said. Nothing to be apologetic about. Just to be here in my power, which is not mine alone. It's collective. And that's why I can stand in such steadiness. Because this power is not dependent on me or anything that can diminish or augment me. All of us are being awakened, smacked into awakening <laughs> in different ways. And the sadhana gives me this insight to say over and over again, what is the opportunity here? How must I respond to this? in a way that brings me and everybody else ease and compassion, even ease in expressing my anger and my disappointment because these are present. And to me, that is where the peace exists in the chaos. And I thought of something, I'm just going to share a little story from a couple of years ago. So growing up in India, in Bombay, we've had some serious hardcore terrorist attacks and I've lived through two of them I almost died in one and I don't even know how to explain the intensity of being in a city with so many million people during a terrorist attack and trying to literally find refuge and in the past I, I missed the train blasts by a few minutes Literally, I still have that train ticket from that day, 7-Eleven. And it was all because I was eating a sandwich and I was in a taxi, a cab on the way to the train station. And I was so hungry, I hadn't eaten all day. And on a moment of impulse, I said to the taxi driver, can you take me home, which was quite far away, I lived in the suburbs, and that would be very expensive because I wanted to eat the sandwich. I really needed to eat the sandwich. And so we changed route. And if I hadn't said that, I would not be alive right now. And I went to a student's house and after the blasts had sort of kind of, you know, there were several blasts had kind of subsided or stopped. We went out to see where we could help because we knew there's only that much the government can do. And it was blood and pain and just like the whole body you want to wretch like it's 
you have to stay together and be of assistance. But it shook me up so much. And years later, when I didn't have a steady sadhana at all at that time, and years later, we were in Barcelona right after the attacks. And we landed on the morning after the attack. And I didn't want to go. We were in Sevilla going to Barcelona. And my husband said to me, it's unlikely that after this, they're going to have another attack. So I think it'll be really safe. And I said, okay, I don't know how I feel. I feel because we have a little child. Like I'm not so concerned about myself. But And we got to our hotel and we were walking on the pavement. And you know, those attacks in last round blast happened through vehicles. Every truck or car that was passing by, I was looking at and thinking, are there terrorists in that truck? And my little one caught on to the energy. We mentioned to her that something bad had happened, but we didn't give her details because we didn't want to traumatize her. And thankfully, she was too young to understand Spanish and to understand what everyone was talking about. And I was so fearful that night, Michelle. I was so fearful. And we went back to the hotel. And I couldn't sleep. I was tossing and turning. And I thought, we are here. There must be a reason. I've been through two terrorist attacks before. This is nothing like Mumbai. This is like super peaceful compared to Mumbai. And the systems are all in place and everything. How can this be an opportunity to transmute the fear, which is a practice of Pratipaksha Bhavana? I sat to meditate. And I was doing, and when I say meditate, I mean pranayam because it's a precursor to meditation in the Ashtangam. Tihara. So you can't sit to meditate in that state of being. Definitely pranayam is a practice that will harmonize the nervous system. And I had this insight during my practice. And so after, I won't tell you what the insight is, but I'll tell you what happened the next day. So we woke up the next morning. And always carry colored papers and stuff so that the little one can always sort of be engaged. And so we cut up these construction papers into little notes. And I wrote something in it. I, I messaged a friend that spoke Catalan because that's the kind of Spanish they speak in, in Barcelona. And he translated it for me. I wrote it down on these papers. And my daughter drew little squiggles and hearts, whatever she wanted to. And we put this into my jeans pocket and we walked through whatever tours whatever we needed to do and everywhere there were security people these notes said in Catalan thank you for keeping us safe and my daughter was afraid of the policemen and because they were like armed and they were everywhere and she, being in the Cayman Islands she wasn't really used to it like we're not used to policemen at all I remember this one moment she was very excited because every time we gave it she would give it to the police police people like security people and they'd just be like doing their job. And then they'd kind of engage her because she was a little kid. So they weren't as suspicious, but they were kind of like, what's this? Like, what is going on? Not really present for it. And then they'd read this note and their faces would change. And so she got so excited, Michelle, that she was, instead of the children's dragon hunting tour, she was most excited about, when are we going to see the next policeman? <laughs> and there was this one big, burly guy. I'll never forget this huge, big, kind of really burly guy. And, and she goes up to him and gives him this. And he reads the note. And he gets down on his knees. And he says to her, Abrazo. And they hug this tiny little girl and this big policeman. 
like I will never forget it for lifetimes, I'm sure, to experience something like that. And the reason I felt called to share that is because I could not take refuge in the mind. I could not take refuge in logic. I could not take refuge in, oh, I'm going to balance my nervous system now and I'm going to activate my parasympathetic by breathing slow and deep and like all of that cognitive sort of stuff. But because I have had that background of daily pranayam practice, I could go back to it as a source of comfort. Like we might go to mashed potatoes or khichdi or whatever it is culturally for us. Seeking nothing, just going back to, I, I just need to be in this space. And then this came and this transformed this whole experience of fear and terror into one where I'd like to think in some small way, we were able to be of service to the ones that had left their families. You know, incidentally, on the train from Sevilla to Barcelona, we were sitting next to a policeman and he was with his family traveling. And it's funny. And then after all this happened, we met him again. And we just, it was just such a beautiful sharing. And so I just want to say to whoever's listening that having a daily sadhana, whatever that looks like for you, and personally out of my experience, I would say a practice that is rooted in technique because the technique is facilitating results. There is a technique because it saves time, it saves its economy of effort and luxury of inner experience. And to me, that's yoga. It's economy of effort. Though it, it initially, it seems very effortful. And luxury of inner experience that is not dependent on anything outside. It will, by its very nature, bring you to a space of refuge where you are in refuge as sharanam, as trust. Not I take refuge because I am afraid. It is, I am afraid, but because home is always available. I take refuge out of trust. That same trust, Michelle, that is inbuilt into our tech, in our technology. The fact that we cannot sustain an in-breath for too long. We cannot sustain holding the breath for too long. We cannot sustain the out-breath for too long. We must let go of the out-breath. So there's that gap where there is no in-breath. That is the uncertainty, right? But in the trust, we are designed to trust that the next breath will arrive, whether we are conscious of it or not. Refuges, trust is inbuilt in our entire system, whether it's the human system of breathing or the tree shedding the leaves and the trust that there will be spring. Because it is inherent in the genealogy, the technology, the DNA, whatever you want to call it, in the laws of the universe. We can all do it. We are designed for it. Thank you for sharing everything you just shared in your story and your practice. And there are the words you shared, and then there's what's between the words. It's what I always am listening for and to. And thank you for the teaching you just offered. That's what I want to say. Connected to this moment and, and beyond, because you are talking about the beyond, the beyond, <laughs> like you're talking about something bigger than this moment and what our responsibility is. Like, what do we want to do in this moment? I heard we have what we need to respond and we have what we need to um, experience refuge that we don't always have to seek it out. It's already, it's here, it's present. It's in our genes, our DNA, our energy, our essence. It's here. 
think I just have one more question for you, even though I feel like I could ask you a lot more questions, many more questions. And that is, I know that you offer a lot. You mentioned that you teach people one-on-one, but you also offer work with group practices with groups of people. And I'm wondering if there's anything coming up that you want people to know about that you're offering or anything just that people can look forward to that you're birthing at this time. So one of the things that I offer that I I really enjoy, I think I enjoy everything, but um, one of the things that I fought for a while, but then sort of just was like, okay, I'm coming out now. You can't hold me back with Sadhana Club, which is, it is like, it's an online, like a spiritual sanctuary for yoga lovers. I always say yoga lovers because in India, yogis is, we can't like, again, this is where maybe, where you're having this downward cultural appropriation conversation where there is a certain you it's like calling everybody Jesus because they practice Christianity. No, yogi means something. So I like to say yoga lovers because I think it brings the human and the desire, which is at the root of our practice and our humanity into not being holier than thou and like sort of caging us in this sort of romanticized idea of spirituality that is love and light and, and sugar coating. So yeah, so it's like it's for yoga lovers and it's an ongoing exploration. There's no beginning or end to the course. Like I have a wait list, but you know, when spaces open up, then you can join at any time. And we explore really yoga in the way that I was taught it as a very practical practice. I really am all about practicality, even though there's like obviously a lot of connection with the energetics and and grace. But, you know, some of the things we explore like that do not get explored in teacher trainings are, we've been looking at Artha when the economic sort of downturn started with all of this. I found that most people in the yoga space weren't talking like we're offering scholarships and sliding scale, but we're not talking about what is the relationship with money as someone who's practicing yoga because there is this oh I have to be so giving that money's a bad thing and we have so much whether we practice yoga or not we all have so much around it so there's a lot of swadhyay there's a lot of beauty in the texts and in the practices on and understanding what the deities stand for and what the mantras really do what they're designed to do and how to use them so that we can access the technology that is hidden behind this sort of the facade of the the image or the words and all of those. Yes, we can stress on the pronunciation. It's important, but there's there's more. So we've been exploring that and it's been such a healing journey and we're exploring now karma or desire. And in most yoga teacher trainings, it's like usually, oh, like that's, let's look at spiritual desires, but you know, we're looking at human desires. We're looking at sexuality. We're looking at like all these nuances of how we communicate about touch with ourselves and with the people in our life, whether they're pets or our partners. And we're having raw, honest conversations and swadhe, like self-inquiry. Another thing that I love about Sandra Clubs, we have guest teachers. So I truly believe that like what I know is limited and what I know will come out of my personal experience of truth. It's beautiful, but it's still just mine. So I have guest teachers come and you're going to be on soon. (laughs) So uh, to come and share about how they experience the various practices of yoga and how they can share tools that invite others into the practice. And I have a Bhakti Yoga Summit that finished and now forcefully birthing through me again is a Pranayam Summit. 
And that should, by grace, be out by the first half. It should begin and sort of come, come out by the first half of 2021. COVID has really shown that it's really about breath. Like to me, COVID is about breath. You either get scared of the breath because you're scared of breathing because you don't know what you're going to get, or you develop a different relationship with the breath, with the nasal passages and the sinuses and like all those labyrinths inside. And you see how breath can fortify us in not just in terms of immunity. And immunity is connected to the thymus, which is the heart chakra. And, and there's so much deliciousness there. So the Divine Mother is really kind of like pushing me to the Pranayam Summit. I don't know how it's going to happen. But yeah, that's definitely something to look forward to. And then, yeah, I do teach Pranayam and Bhakti and things like that on teacher trainings. So that's something you host and looking to have this kind of an energy that that is available as a service to. Yes, Mirabelle, you have a lot that is moving through you and coursing through you and that you're birthing. And I hope that folks, people listening, connect with you. And in the show notes, I'll include how folks can connect with you and stay up to date with your offerings. And I just want to thank you for Again, all of the teachings, like every answer had about eight teachings in it. So all of the teachings and who you are, the energy of who you are, the essence of who you are, this incarnation of who you are and this, at this time, I'm happy you're here on the planet at this time and that we have gotten to connect and are beginning to connect, right? And develop a relationship. And so thank you for who you are and for what you do and what you offer and what you practice and what you teach. And thanks for being a guest on Finding Refuge. Thank you so much for allowing for whatever had to come and being so flowing and spontaneous with your questions. It's beautiful. And of course, all of everything else you do, including your amazing book that I totally love. Yeah, I like talking in this way instead of planning out all the questions because it allows things to move through. So thanks for flowing with it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Finding Refuge. You can support Finding Refuge by sharing it with your friends, family members, and beloveds, and rating it on iTunes. You can support my work by becoming a patron on Patreon. My name on Patreon is Skill in Action. Thank you so much, and take care, friends.